0: Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we do at Kung Fu Podcast. I'm your host, Seafood T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today in episode number 113. It's still amazing to me how far we've come since uh, day one. And we're going to have some revisiting of some of those early days. But before I get into all that... Welcome. If it's your first time here to Kung fu Podcast, I hope that you find it educational as well as entertaining. And if this is your first day, I would suggest you go back to number 111 where we began the introduction to the mythology of martial arts, a book written by Dr. Paul Bowman and a friend of Kung Fu Podcast. Kung Fu Podcast is a value for value program and some of the sharpest and finest martial arts in the world are an audience to this program. Some support the program actively, Some will support it through contributions, like Jason, who just signed up over our Patreon account to help me achieve some financial goals to keep this program developed and growing so that we can do some more and I can do some more in sharing some of the educational materials that we have. There are a number of ways to support this program, and you can go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support and see a list of things that would help me greatly to keep this program moving. In fact, I was supposed to mention this in episode 112, but it kind of just slipped my mind, that this podcast is supported by Audible, where you can find several of the books that we reference here at audible.com, and you can use this program's affiliate link to get there, kungfupodcast.com forward slash Audible. If you use the link, you can get a 30-day free trial and a credit to download one book. And one of the books we just referenced in episode 112 by Edward Sale titled Orientalism. So that's an audio book I'm actually put on my list to go back to listen to a little bit later. But right now we've got to get through and this will be the last installment of the glimpse into Dr. Paul Bowman's work, The Mythologies of Martial Arts. The next chapter he starts off on is one that we have discussed here on several occasions. The Circulation of Chi. And we've discussed the myths and the crapola surrounding using qi for uh, martial arts practice, for uh, defending yourself, or all this other stuff on several different episodes. In fact, in episode 67 that I had titled The Chikung Cleanup, we introduced Professor David Palmer, who's done quite a bit of research in this area of qi and how The term itself got started, I want to say, about 1,500 years ago, and then it became this twisted mess about 45 to 55 years ago. Well, during this chapter and some other chapters, Dr. Bowman really kind of goes through how this circulation, and by circulation, he's referring to the circulation of media and the circulation of translation from academics and others who actually, you know, becomes like a flow. And as it flows, it changes into whatever they want. In fact, he introduces a phrase, at least it's the first time I've ever heard of it, called the invention of tradition. And it's all about how these massive powers, particularly government powers or large agency powers, can take some good works and transform them into other things. We talked about that a lot in the podcast with uh, Mr. Alex Gillis as he unveiled quite a bit about the legends and mystery of Taekwondo. One of the key points that Dr. Bowman brings out is that it's these 19th century translations of the Chinese and Tibetan texts that triggered almost all of this mysticism that we know today. In regards to the Qigong practice, he writes, quote, David Palmer points out that the putatively ancient and mystical qi cultivation practice known as qi kong was only actually named and designated as such in the middle of the 20th century. In his words, referring to David Palmer, he says the choice of the term qi kong by party cadres in 1949 reflected an ideological project to extract Chinese body cultivation techniques from their feudal and religious setting to standardize them and to put them to service of the construction of a secular, modern state. As such, Qigong is an invented tradition. Let's also put ourselves in a perspective here that the mid-1800s was a very tough time in China. The fall of the Qing Dynasty was underway, and many of the people there were divided about which way the country should go. There was a lot of anger and strong opinions just like our recent presidential race here in the United States. I've actually witnessed several relationships come to an end because one person found out that another person voted in a different way than that they wanted them to. And we're supposed to be in a democracy. It's important to remember that during this time period, if we were there, sitting there, things were getting desperate, things were getting hostile, and a lot of things were changing, and you didn't know which direction this country was going to go or the country was going to go if we were there during that time. It promoted the opportunity to be creative for whether it was right or wrong. It instilled this opportunity to take other parts of the culture and instill them in other places that they didn't really belong Or to translate something from one place to another so that it could mean something different and carry out a different objective. And I hope I said that in a way that made sense. In fact, I was just listening to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast in his latest episode, The Destroyer Worlds. It's a good example of how things were really getting desperate during the 1940s. And a lot of things were changing and people were getting real creative in order to get what they wanted. Another key point that Dr. Bowman pulls out in in regards to the Asian culture and martial arts interpretations moving from the east to the west is that one of the largest bodies that was doing this carrying of traditions and culture and martial arts and then later the myths was primarily the Americans who were enlisted in the military. The U.S. military was introduced to the Asian martial arts in Japan and this term, Qi, well before they were ever introduced to the Chinese martial arts and Qi. Well, in his book, he goes through a laundry list of these myths. So, some of the ones that we have pointed out here before is that, you know, you'll hear things like Tai Chi is a Taoist art. Well, myth. A list of the manuals that have been shown over and over again to not be authentic and to be bogus, as well as some of the extraordinary, supernatural Shaolin skills. But as Paul writes on page 49, popular presses like Shambhala books heavily weighted their catalogs toward Eastern mysticism. Editors at Shambhala, Yoga Journal, Tricycle, and New Age magazines not only published on the basis of what they thought their public wanted to read but often led the way in explicitity or implicit linking practices like Tai Chi Chuan to Taoism. But one of the things I really got a much better understanding of is how much modern media at the time, and even continues to this day, helps circulate this mysticism of Chi or of any other of these myths that was coming through because they were trying to sell magazines. And most of that, as Paul points out, is because Wanting something is the main ingredient for making things change. If what someone wants is strong enough, they can actually invent traditions that have never existed. They're just pulling it out of, we're not going to say it, but they're just making the stuff up. And we've heard it over and over again. Again, uh, like Mr. Alex Gillis points out in his book, some of this stuff was just manufactured to make sure that certain things fell into certain places. This not only can create traditions, but it can change traditions. And even if it requires that these what used to be a cultural tradition is now swimming in this barrel of mysticism and myth, doesn't matter if it serves what they want. And on page fifty seven he goes through a list of these myths that originated strictly from just wanting. But as I was doing my supplemental research, like I usually try to do for each podcast, I found a good story on how a tradition that's based in a lot of myth and legends, but it's also become part of a culture even here in the United States, and how it can be changed and injected with the sense of betterment through wanting. I found the article at pre.org, and that's spelled P-R-I. It's dated January 27th. 2017, and this post was placed in the section titled, Arts, Culture, and Media. Now, imagine that. This section in the newspaper has actually everything that we're talking about. Arts, Culture, and Media. The article was titled, In New York's Lunar New Year Parade, Women Are Breaking Barriers as Lion Dancers. We referenced lion dancing quite a bit, and particularly KungFuPodcast.com. Four In the article, author Alina Simone was interviewing a gentleman named Carlin Chan, who joined what was called the Freemasons when he was 10 years old back in the 1960s. The Chinese Freemasons, which have no connection or relationship to the European Freemasonry, came together in the late 1800s to support the immigrants from China. During the interview, Mr. Chan discusses how his tradition of the lion dances is from the southern style kung fu and that only the top students of the martial arts got to participate in the lion dancing. It was also pointed out how both the lion dancing and the membership into the Chinese Freemasonry was traditionally for men only. In fact, the article says, quote, "...the club remained steeped in tradition." with the Buddhist shrine taking up a large corner of the room. Back when Carlin Chan joined it, it was still all male and all Chinese. But in the 1970s they started letting non-Chinese kids who wanted to lion dance become members. And in the 80s, the Chinese Freemasons became one of the first New York Chinatown troops to welcome women lion dancers. The article continues and they're interviewing one of the young ladies where she's discussing about how some traditions are still being recognized with the lion dancing. And she says, For example, women are not allowed to touch the head if they're on their period, because the lion head is supposed to bring you good luck, and if you're bleeding, it's bad luck. She continues, I think nobody wants to be that person to say, let's forget what our ancestors told us. In this story, traditions... Even on something such as the myth displayed by the lion dance can cause changes in culture. But here's an event, even though this was a role-playing activity, certain cultural traditions were still being recognized. No one allowed who's not Chinese till the 70s. No women until the 80s. So even though they're playing roles in this mythical presentation, they were actually keeping hard lines on such things as nationality and gender. I thought of this work as a compliment to Paul's uh, lessons in his book because the wanting creates myth. And in this story, a young lady's wanting, doing up to 500 push-ups in a night just so she can make it, helps her penetrate through the hard lines of a mythical event. As Paul goes on in his book, in chapter 5, titled History, Authority, and Authenticity, There's a lot of references to several names that you hear out through this program. And in one place he says that Stanley Hennings has done the most to, quote, identify, discuss, and debunk many of the most tenacious myths and legends, end quote. Paul references a part of Stanley Hennings' book titled On Politically Correct Treatment of Myths in Chinese Martial Arts. And he says, quote, There is a rising trend in the Occidental world of Oriental martial arts. The number of, air quote, scholars who, in spite of making pretenses to upholding, air quote, academic standards, are displaying no small amount of intellectual compromise by acting as apologists for the myths surrounding the Chinese martial arts. They do this in a manner which gives one the impression that they somehow feel that to expose these myths is an irreverent act, harming the sensitivities of the Chinese people and insulting to pseudo-intellectual Occidentals seeking a new age refuge in oriental mysticism, or worse yet, causing them to lose interest in a subject about which these scholars delight in composing involved, ambiguous treaties. End quote. And in that paragraph, Mr. Hennings pretty much takes a stack of academic scholars and takes them out to the woodshed. And Mr. Hennings identified several reasons why these scholars might not be holding up to the academic standard. First, as he said, that they might be thinking that they're doing an irreverent act. Second, that they might be harming the sensitivities of the Chinese people and that they might also be insulting the pseudo-intellectual types who are looking to bathe themselves in this mystic water. Or worse of all, that if they actually come clean and stay to an academic standard, that people will no longer be interested in hearing about things that they want to talk a lot about. The one thing here I made on my personal notes that I didn't see in the book here, in the mythologies of martial arts, a man who preceded, most, and in fact, is even usually recognized as perhaps the first historian in the Chinese martial arts who really did a lot to help try to debunk a lot of this mysticism was Tong Hao. And we did a whole episode on Tong Hao in number 34. Tong Hao was there during the time that these, a lot of these myths were being put together. He was a lawyer a historian and a martial artist, and actually put himself in harm's way by trying to maintain a level of standard and debunking these myths before they could catch hold. Of course, you know, he wasn't as successful as he wanted to be, but you may want to check out the episode on Tang Hao. It's a powerful story, and a man who went through a lot to try to keep his culture and tradition as he knew it from falling to the myth circulation. Good friend of the program, Ben Judkins writes, Tang Hao is not a familiar name to many traditional Chinese martial artists. Few people have had a more profound impact on the way that we write and think about these hand combat systems. A lawyer by training and profession, Tang Hao was the first individual to undertake a serious and sustained investigation of the history of the Chinese martial arts using modern documentary and field research methods during his book in investigating myths, Paul turns his lens into what he calls one of the most stark cases, Taekwondo. Paul goes through a number of things that he experienced, he has observed, and it's also his references. In fact, he references uh, Mr. Gillis. His book is another one that you could get at Audible by going to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash audible. And in chapter 5, it is where you're going to see where all the wants from various perspectives and how they lead to the manufacturing of legends, reinventing traditions, creating histories, and also eliminating real people from the history. Paul also presents how academic researchers of different times and or places may not have had the option of sharing their findings along the way. And it's important to remember that we don't all live in free-speaking free-riding places. And there are some people, some associations, some agencies, and some governments that have built their reputations on these myths. And they get very bothered by podcasters like myself or academics like Ben Juckins and Dr. Bowman or Tong Hao. They get their feathers ruffled by practical martial artists such as Ian Abernathy and many other people like you, some of the sharpest and finest martial artists in the world, who practice practical martial arts, who want to practice culture and tradition, but not by somebody putting a blindfold over your eyes, putting a piercing in your nose, and dragging you around like you're some ox who's not smart enough to ask a question. And even though, for example, I may not be trying to discredit their efforts or their skills, or perhaps that they were just misled but they're not going to pull the wool over my eyes. And so sometimes they get offended because the Carolinian part of me will come out and say something like, you know, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. I might be open-minded, but I'm not stupid. I think of it like secondhand smoke. I don't care if you smoke. Go ahead, knock yourself out, enjoy it. Just don't do it around me. And so this is kind of the same thing for me. I don't care to play in all the magic or the made-up games one of the most pivotal places in the book is where he asks the question, what do you do when you discover that some of the things that you have practiced or believed in is on the list of myths? And page 67 is critical. When do you come to terms that something may not be as it was presented, but it might still be valuable, it might still be useful, and it is still enjoyable? Now, I know that Alex Gillis and Taekwondo Dr. Bowman and karate and tai chi, and Ben Junkins and Wing Chun, they all have recognized and know about the myths associated with their particular styles of martial arts as they practice, and they still practice. They still enjoy it. They still encourage their martial arts, and they all still advocate the practical martial arts. Now, they have come to terms with the myths that are associated with their styles, but it does not devalue their practical martial arts. So the question is posed, if histories are a blend of politics, myths, wants, and etc., do you really need it? Did your forefathers need it? For the martial arts practitioner, tradition and history are certainly not everything. He goes on to write, The inside of martial arts practice seems clearly to be identified with the practice itself, the physical practice, the training, the sparring, the embodiedness of the practice. In other words, martial arts and martial artists do not in and of themselves need history. Grand historical narratives are not necessary for the legitimation and legitimization of martial arts. Such narratives primarily legitimate and legitimize other things anyway. Institutional hierarchies, ethno-nationalist myths, National structures of feelings, film fantasies, tourist industries, and so on. So, what does the martial artist actually need? End quote. And the next part of that chapter immediately made me think of Jamie Club, for Paul goes on to write about a term he calls performativity, and he references. Scientific knowledge does not exclusively rely on narratives such as history or lineages, although narratives can't be totally removed from it. Paul writes, Scientific knowledge is legitimated through performativity, through the performative, regular, stable, and predictable demonstration of efficiency and effectiveness. I'd like to read that again because it really resonated with me. Scientific knowledge is legitimated through performativity, through the performative, regular, stable, and predictable demonstration of efficiency and effectiveness. End quote. And as Paul goes through his book, He's going to show you how this circulation of myths and legends and all these types of things have been dramatized and eventually immortalized. And One of the first stories he brings out actually shocked me because I'd totally forgotten about it, was Spock and his death grip from Star Trek. But as you go through his work, and I'm going to be keeping my copy of his work on my shelf to reference, Paul shares so much information to which a practical martial artist of any system can consider. Then he completes the book with the following. Problems of culture, politics, and ideology are not simply solved by piercing through the falsity to liberate truth. This is something that those involved in martial arts studies need to bear in mind. Martial arts studies must not descend into the simple denunciation of falsity in the name of truth. Rather, the complex roles, pleasures, and very real consequences of so-called falsities include myths must be born in mind. The very idea of a simple, achievable truth free from falsity may itself be one of the greatest myths against which we struggle. End quote. End of book. throughout these three podcasts 111 112 and 113 we have become aware of how myths are formed and where does the fuel come from that gives them this push to become whatever it is that we see at the moment who is going to gain from them amazingly it is like this massive conspiracy theory because it's going to take a lot of powerful people in powerful positions with a powerful want to make changes and these myths happen like the ones we see in taekwondo, karate, and as well as in the Chinese martial arts. It is a major undertaking to create such a myth and then have it propagated so that it actually shields everyone from the truth. And what I've done in these few podcasts is I've shared some of the very tips of the iceberg in his book. I'm going to be reading and referencing Dr. Bowman's work for probably several years to come. And let's be clear, it is not going to make your armbar any stronger. And he may or may not participate in the arguments of what is the best way to practice the headbutt, even though I think he might. But he does tangle with this haze and web of legends and myths and how they're manufactured history, invented traditions, and gives you a refreshing reminder that he's a practical martial artist and participates in the martial arts, and that real martial arts, it's about you, the student, the teacher, the relationship that you share, the sharing of what you do, the knowledge of what you do, the baton of lineage that cuts through the haze that's been obfuscating our vision. It is all about your practice, your routines, your effort, your sweat and focus on being a martial artist that no haze, no myth, or any load of crap will ever be able to stop. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today in episode number 113 where we have taken a look at Dr. Bowman's book, The Mythologies of Martial Arts, and all of the good teachings that were in it. I hope you have a fantastic practice. Go out there, do your very best. And if you learn that something's, you know, a little bit of a high tale or a little bit of a myth or a story, it doesn't necessarily make what you've been doing or what you've learned invaluable. There's been plenty of good old folk, folk stories that, you know, my mom or grandma would tell us, And it didn't devalue the lessons that were in the stories, even if the stories may never have happened. Take care of yourselves, and I'll be talking with you again soon.